Chapter Eleven, Part A of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Eleven, Part A. Jeanne was confined to her room for three months, and everyone despaired of her life. But very, very gradually, health and strength returned to her. Her father and Aunt Lison had come to live at the chateau and they nursed her day and night. The shock she had sustained had entirely upset her nervous system. She started at the least noise, and the slightest emotion caused her to go off into long swoons. She had never asked the details of Julien's death. Why should she? Did she not already know enough? Everyone except herself thought it had been an accident, and she never revealed to anyone the terrible secret of her husband's adultery and of the comte's sudden fearful visit, the day of the catastrophe. Her soul was filled with the sweet, tender memories of the few short hours of bliss she owed to her husband, and she always pictured him to herself as he had been when they were betrothed, and when she had adored him in the only moments of sensual passion of her life. She forgot all his faults and harshness, even his infidelity seemed more pardonable now that death stood between him and her. She felt a sort of vague gratitude to this man who had clasped her in his arms, and she forgave him the sorrows he had caused her, and dwelt only on the happy moments they had passed together. As time wore on, and month followed month, covering her grief and memories with the dust of forgetfulness, Jeanne devoted herself entirely to her son the child became the idol, the one engrossing thought of the three beings over whom he ruled like any despot. There was even a sort of jealousy between his three slaves, for Jeanne grudged the hearty kisses he gave the baron when the latter rode him on his knees, and Aunt Lisson, who was neglected by this baby, as she had always been by everyone, and was regarded as a servant by this master who could not talk yet, would go to her room and cry as she compared the few kisses which she had so much difficulty in obtaining with the embraces the child so freely lavished on his mother and grandfather. Two peaceful, uneventful years were passed thus in devoted attention to the child. Then, at the beginning of the third winter, it was arranged that they should all go to Rouen until the spring. But they had hardly arrived at the damp old house before Paul had such a severe attack of bronchitis that pleurisy was feared. His distracted mother was convinced that no other heir but that of Les Peuples agreed with him, and they all went back there as soon as he was well. Then came a series of quiet, monotonous years. Jeanne, her father, and Aunt Lison spent all their time with the child and were continually going into raptures over the way he lisped or with his funny sayings and doings. Jeanne lovingly called him Paulet, and when he tried to repeat the word, he made them all laugh by pronouncing it Poulet, for he could not speak plainly. The nickname Poulet clung to him, and henceforth he was never called anything else. He grew very quickly, and one of the chief amusements of his three mothers, as the baron called them, was to measure his height. On the wainscoting by the drawing-room door was a series of marks made with a penknife, showing how much the boy had grown every month. And these marks, which were called Poulet's Ladder, were of great importance in everyone's eyes. 
Then there came a very unexpected addition to the important personages of the household. The dog massacre, which Jeanne had neglected since all her attention had been centred in her son. Ludivine fed him, and he lived quite alone and always on the chain in an old barrel in front of the stables. Paul noticed him one morning, and at once wanted to go and kiss him. The dog made a great fuss over the child, who cried when he was taken away, so Massacre was unchained and henceforth lived in the house. He became Paul's inseparable friend and companion. They played together and lay down side by side on the carpet to go to sleep, and soon Massacre shared the bed of his playfellow, who would not let the dog leave him. Jeanne lamented sometimes over the fleas, and Anne-Lisson felt angry with the dog for absorbing so much of the child's affection, affection for which she longed and which it seemed to her this animal had stolen. At long intervals, visits were exchanged with the Brisevilles and the Coutiliers, but the mayor and the doctor were the only regular visitors at the chateau. The brutal way in which the priest had killed the dog, and the suspicions he had instilled into her mind about the time of Julien's and Gilbert's horrible death, had roused Jeanne's indignation against the god who could have such ministers, and she had entirely ceased to attend church. From time to time the abbé inveighed in outspoken terms against the chateau, which, he said, was inhabited by the spirit of evil, the spirit of everlasting rebellion, the spirit of errors and of lies, the spirit of iniquity, the spirit of corruption and impurity. It was by all these names that he alluded to the baron. The church was deserted, and when the curé happened to walk past any fields in which the ploughmen were at work, the men never ceased their task to speak to him, or turned to touch their hats. He acquired the reputation of being a wizard because he cast out the devil from a woman who was possessed and the peasants believed he knew words to dispel charms. He laid his hands on cows that gave thin milk, discovered the whereabouts of things which had been lost by means of a mysterious incantation, and devoted his narrow mind to the study of all the ecclesiastical books in which he could find accounts of the devil's apparitions upon earth, or descriptions of his resources and stratagems, and the various ways in which he manifested his power and exercised his influence. Believing himself specially called to combat this invisible, harmful power, the priest had learnt all the forms given in religious manuals to exorcise the devil. He fancied Satan lurked in every shadow, and the phrase, See at Leo Rugian circuit, querens quem devoret, was continually on his lips. People began to be afraid of his strange power, even his fellow clergy, ignorant country priests, to whom Beelzebub was an article of their faith, and who, perplexed by the minute directions for the rites to be observed in case of any manifestations of the evil one's power, at last confounded religion with magic, regarded the Abbe Tolbiac as somewhat of a wizard, and respected him as much for the supernatural power he was supposed to possess as for the irreproachable austerity of his life. The curé never bowed to Jeanne if he chanced to meet her, and such a state of things worried and grieved Aunt Lisson, who could not understand how anyone could systematically stay away from church. Everyone took it for granted that she was religious, and confessed and communicated at proper intervals, and no one ever tried to find out what her views on religion really were. 
Whenever she was quite alone with Paul, Lisson talked to him, in whispers, about the good God. The child listened to her with a faint degree of interest when she related the miracles which had been performed in the old times, and when she told him he must love the good God very, very dearly, he sometimes asked, Where is he, Auntie? She would point upwards and answer, Up there, above the sky, Poulet. But you must not say anything about it, for she feared the Baron would be angry if he knew what she was teaching the boy. One day, however, Poulet startled her by asserting, The good God is everywhere except in church, and she found he had been talking to his grandfather about what she had told him. Paul was now ten years old. His mother looked forty. He was strong, noisy, and boldly climbed the trees, but his education had, so far, been very neglected. He disliked lessons, would never settle down to them, and, if ever the baron managed to keep him reading a little longer than usual, Jeanne would interfere, saying, Let him go and play now. He is so young to be tired with books. In her eyes he was still an infant, and she hardly noticed that he walked, ran, and talked like a man in miniature. She lived in constant anxiety lest he should fall down, or get too cold or too hot, or overload his stomach, or not eat as much as his growth demanded. When the boy was twelve years old, a great difficulty arose about his first communion. Lise went to Jeanne's room one morning, and pointed out to her that the child could not be permitted to go any longer without religious instruction, and without performing the simplest sacred duties. She called every argument to her aid, and gave a thousand reasons for the necessity of what she was urging, dwelling chiefly upon the danger of scandal. The idea worried Jeanne, and unable to give a decided answer, she replied that Paul could very well go on as he was for a little longer. A month after this discussion with Lise, Jeanne called on the Vicomtesse de Briseville. "'I suppose it will be Paul's first communion this year,' said the Vicomtesse, in the course of conversation. "'Yes, madame,' answered Jeanne, taken unawares. These few words had the effect of deciding her, and without saying anything about it to her father, she asked Lise to take the child to the catechism class. Everything went on smoothly for a month. Then Poulet came back one evening with a sore throat, and the next day he began to cough. His frightened mother questioned him as to the cause of his cold, and he told her that he had not behaved very well in class, so the curé had sent him to wait at the door of the church, where there was a draught from the porch, until the end of the lesson. After that, Jeanne kept him at home, and taught him his catechism herself, but the Abbé Tolbiac refused to admit him to communion, in spite of all Lisson's entreaties, alleging as his reason that the boy had not been properly prepared. The following year he refused him again, and the Baron was so exasperated that he said plainly there was no need for Paul to believe in such foolery as this absurd symbol of transubstantiation to become a good and honest man. So it was resolved to bring the boy up in the Christian faith, but not in the Catholic Church, and that he should decide his religion for himself when he reached his majority. A short time afterwards, Jeanne called on the Brisevilles, and received no visit in return. Knowing how punctilious they were in all matters of etiquette, she felt very much surprised at the omission, until the Marquise de Coutillier haughtily told her the reason of this neglect. 
Aware that her husband's rank and wealth made her the queen of the Normandy aristocracy, the Marquise ruled in queen-like fashion, showing herself gracious or severe as occasions demanded. She never hesitated to speak as she thought, and reproved or congratulated or corrected whenever she thought fit. When Jeanne called on her, she addressed a few icy words to her visitor, then said in a cold tone, Society divides itself naturally into two classes, those who believe in God and those who do not. The former, however lowly they may be, are our friends and equals. With the latter we can have nothing to do. Jeanne felt that she was being attacked and replied, But cannot one believe in God without constantly attending church? No, madame. Believers go to pray to God in his church as they would go to visit their friends at their houses. God is everywhere, madame, and not only in the churches, answered Jeanne, feeling very hurt. I believe in his goodness and mercy from the bottom of my heart, but when there are certain priests between him and me, I can no longer realize his presence. The priest is the standard-bearer of the church, madame, said the Marquise, rising and whoever does not follow that flag is as much our enemy as the church's. Jeanne had risen also. You believe in the god of a sect, madame, she replied, quivering with indignation. I believe in the god whom every upright man reveres. And with a bow she left the marquise. Among themselves the peasants also blamed Jeanne for not sending Poulet to his first communion. They themselves did not go to Mass and never took the sacrament, or at least only at Easter when the Church formally commanded it. But when it came to the children, that was a different matter, and not one of them would have dared to bring a child up outside the common faith, for, after all, religion is religion. Jeanne was quite conscious of the disapproval with which everyone regarded her conduct, but such inconsistency only roused her indignation and she scorned the people who could thus quiet their consciences so easily, and hide the cowardly fears which lurked at the bottom of their hearts, under the mask of righteousness. The baron undertook to direct Paul's studies, and began to instruct him in Latin. The boy's mother had but one word to say on the subject, "'Whatever you do, don't tire him,' and while lessons were going on, she would anxiously hang round the door of the schoolroom, which her father had forbidden her to enter, because at every moment she interrupted his teaching to ask, "'You're sure your feet are not cold, Poulet?' or "'Your head does not ache, does it, Poulet?' or to admonish the master with, "'Don't make him talk so much. He will have a sore throat.' As soon as lessons were over, the boy went into the garden with his mother and aunt. They were all three very fond of gardening, and took great pleasure and interest in planting and pruning, in watching the seeds they had sown come up and blossom, and in cutting flowers for nosegays. Paul devoted himself chiefly to raising salad plants. He had the entire care of four big beds in the kitchen garden, and there he cultivated lettuce, endive, coast lettuce, mustard cress, and every other known kind of salad. He dug, watered, weeded, and planted, and made his two mothers work like day laborers, and for hours together they knelt on the borders, soiling their hands and dresses as they planted the seedlings in the holes they made with their forefingers in the mold. Poulet was almost fifteen, he had grown wonderfully, and the highest mark on the drawing-room wall was over five feet from the ground. But in mind he was still an ignorant, foolish child, 
for he had no opportunity of expanding his intellect, confined as he was to the society of these two women and the good-tempered old man, who was so far behind the times. At last one evening the baron said it was time for the boy to go to college. And Lisson withdrew into a dark corner in horror at the idea, and Jeanne began to sob. "'Why does he want to know so much?' she replied. "'We will bring him up to be a gentleman farmer, to devote himself to the cultivation of his property, as so many noblemen do, and he will pass his life happily in this house, where we have lived before him and where we shall die. What more can he want?' The baron shook his head. What answer will you make if he comes to you a few years hence and says, I am nothing and I know nothing through your selfish love. I feel incapable of working or of becoming anyone now, and yet I know I was not intended to lead the dull, pleasureless life to which your short-sighted affection has condemned me. Jeanne turned to her son with the tears rolling down her cheeks. Oh, Poulet! You will never reproach me for having loved you too much, will you? No, mamma, promised the boy in surprise. You swear you will not? Yes, mamma. You want to stay here, don't you? Yes, mamma. Jeanne, you have no right to dispose of his life in that way, said the baron sternly. Such conduct is cowardly, almost criminal. You are sacrificing your child to your own personal happiness. Jeanne hid her face in her hands while her sobs came in quick succession. "'I have been so unhappy, so unhappy,' she murmured through her tears. "'And now my son has brought peace and rest into my life. You want to take him from me. What will become of me if I am left all alone?' Her father went and sat down by her side. "'And am I no one, Jeanne?' he asked, taking her in his arms. She threw her arms round his neck and kissed him fondly. Then, in a voice still choked with tears and sobs, "'Yes, perhaps you are right, papa, dear,' she answered. "'And I was foolish, but I have had so much sorrow. I am quite willing for him to go to college now.' Then Poulet, who hardly understood what was going to be done with him, began to cry too, and his three mothers kissed and coaxed him and told him to be brave. They all went up to bed with heavy hearts, and even the baron wept when he was alone in his room, though he had controlled his emotions downstairs. It was resolved to send Paul to the college at Havre at the beginning of the next term, and during the summer he was more spoilt than ever. His mother moaned as she thought of the approaching separation, and she got ready as many clothes for the boy as if he had been about to start on a ten years' journey. One October morning, after a sleepless night, the baron, Jeanne, and Antlisson went away with Poulet in the Landau. They had already paid a visit to fix upon the bed he was to have in the dormitory and the seat he was to occupy in class, and this time Jeanne and Antlisson passed the whole day in unpacking his things and arranging them in the little chest of drawers. As the latter would not contain the quarter of what she had brought, Jeanne went to the headmaster to ask if the boy could not have another. The steward was sent for, and he said that so much linen and so many clothes were simply in the way, instead of being of any use, and that the rules of the house forbade him to allow another chest of drawers. So Jeanne made up her mind to hire a room in a little hotel close by, and to ask the landlord himself to take Poulet all he wanted, directly the child found himself in need of anything. 
They all went on the pier for the rest of the afternoon and watched the ships entering and leaving the harbour. Then at nightfall they went to a restaurant for dinner. But they were too unhappy to eat, and the dishes were placed before them and removed almost untouched as they sat looking at each other with tearful eyes. After dinner they walked slowly back to the college. Boys of all ages were arriving on every side, some accompanied by their parents, others by servants. A great many were crying, and the big dim courtyard was filled with the sound of tears. When the time came to say goodbye, Jeanne and Poulet clung to each other as if they could not part, while Aunt Lisson stood, quite forgotten, in the background, with her face buried in her handkerchief. The Baron felt he too was giving way, so he hastened the farewells, and took his daughter from the college. The Landau was waiting at the door, and they drove back to Les Peuples in a silence that was only broken by an occasional sob. Jeanne wept the whole of the following day, and the next she ordered the phaeton and drove over to Havre. Poulet seemed to have got over the separation already. It was the first time he had ever had any companions of his own age. And as he sat beside his mother, he fidgeted on his chair and longed to run out and play. Every other day Jeanne went to see him, and on Sundays took him out. She felt as though she had not energy enough to leave the college between the recreation hours, so she waited in the parlour, while the classes were going on, until Poulet could come to her again. At last the headmaster asked her to go up and see him, and begged her not to come so often. She did not take any notice of his request, and he warned her that if she still persisted in preventing her son from enjoying his play hours, and in interrupting his work, he would be obliged to dismiss him from the college. He also sent a note to the baron, to the same effect, and thenceforth Jeanne was always kept in sight at Le Peuple like a prisoner. She lived in a constant state of nervous anxiety, and looked forward to the holidays with more impatience than her son. She began to take long walks about the country, with Massacre as her only companion, and would stay out of doors all day long, dreamily musing. Sometimes she sat on the cliff the whole afternoon watching the sea. Sometimes she walked across the wood to Eport, thinking as she went of how she had walked there when she was young, and of the long, long years which had elapsed since she had bounded along these very paths a hopeful, happy girl. Every time she saw her son it seemed to Jeanne as if ten years had passed since she had seen him last, for every month he became more of a man, and every month she became more aged. Her father looked like her brother, and Aunt Lisson, who had been quite faded when she was twenty-five, and had never seemed to get older since, might have been taken for her elder sister. Poulet did not study very hard. He spent two years in the fourth form, managed to get through the third in one twelve-month, then spent two more in the second, and was nearly twenty when he reached the rhetoric class. He had grown into a tall, fair youth, with whiskered cheeks and a budding moustache. He came over to Les Peuples every Sunday now, instead of his mother going to see him, and as he had been taking riding lessons for some time past, he hired a horse and accomplished the journey from Havre in two hours. Every Sunday Jeanne started out early in the morning to go and meet him on the road, and with her went Aunt Lisson and the Baron, who was beginning to stoop and who walked like a little old man, with his hands clasped behind his back, as if to prevent himself from pitching forward on his face. 
The three walked slowly along, sometimes sitting down by the wayside to rest, and all the while straining their eyes to catch the first glimpse of the rider. As soon as he appeared, looking like a black speck on the white road, they waved their handkerchiefs, and he at once put his horse at a gallop and came up like a whirlwind, frightening his mother and Aunt Lisson, and making his grandfather exclaim, Bravo! in the admiration of impotent old age. Although Paul was a head taller than his mother, she always treated him as if he were a child and still asked him, as in former years, Your feet are not cold, are they, Poulet? If he went out of doors after lunch to smoke a cigarette, she opened the window to cry, Oh, don't go out there without a hat, you'll catch cold in your head. And when at night he mounted his horse to return, she could hardly contain herself for nervousness and entreated her son not to be reckless. Do not ride too quickly, Poulet, dear, she would say. Think of your poor mother, who would go mad if anything happened to you, and, and be careful. One Saturday morning she received a letter from Paul to say he should not come to Les Peuples as usual the following day, as he had been invited to a party some of his college friends had got up. The whole of Sunday Jeanne was tortured by a presentiment of evil, and when Thursday came she was unable to bear her suspense any longer and went over to Havre. Paul seemed changed, though she could hardly tell in what way. He seemed more spirited, and his words and tones were more manly. By the way, Mamma, we are going on another excursion, and I shan't come to Les Peuples next Sunday, as you have come to see me today, he said all at once, as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Jeanne felt as much surprised and stunned as if he had told her he was going to America. Then, when she was again able to speak, Oh, Poulet, she exclaimed, what is the matter with you? Tell me what is going on. He laughed and gave her a kiss. Why, nothing at all, Mamma. I am only going to enjoy myself with some friends, as everyone does at my age. She made no reply, but when she was alone in the carriage, her head was filled with new and strange ideas. She had not recognized her Poulet, her little Poulet, as of old. She perceived for the first time that he was grown up, that he was no longer hers, that henceforth he was going to live his own life, independently of the old people. To her he seemed to have changed entirely in a day. What? Was this strong, bearded, firm-willed lad her son, her little child who used to make her help him plant his lettuces? End of chapter 11, part A.